out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David E. Storm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Joey Arias, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else as well. So, a bit of a word up about who Joey is. If you don't know, you probably do actually. A multi-talented artist based in New York City, best known for work as a performance artist, cabaret singer and drag artist and has also published his, um, what's published author, comedian, and um, much, much more. Anyway, look, we're going to find out much more during the interview. Oh, yes, we are. Don't you worry. So, um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Joey, it's over to you. You see? It's over. You see, my introductions are very quick. I know, we'd love to get down to the interview. Anyway, Joey, take it away. I, you know, it's really difficult to say because there's been way too many uh, things where it, the bell lit up, you know? There's so many people I met, so many situations I was involved in. Uh, but I'll, just, I'll pick one and I will say, finally meeting my hero, David Bowie. It was Bowie. And Pardon? And this was, and this is David Bowie, and this is the famous clip of you. Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, which we um, several years ago, I went to see that David Bowie exhibition, David Bowie is at the V&A in London, and so there was a lot of that memorabilia, and his yes. outfits, and there was that that kind of um, famous. The, the, the clip of the band who sold the world. Yes, and there you go, and and the and this sort of. The thing that he was like the the body that he was in front of with you and um, Klaus next to him both. both well, that, that, that outfit was kind of, uh, was made from an old uh, Dada Tristan Zara costume. So Bowie was had just got back from Berlin and then he was in New York and doing all this crazy stuff. And then when he you know the way he met us, he just went bananas. Yes. And then and then so we you know imagine spending a week with Bowie like 15 hours a day for a week you know it was it was like something people just you, you, you know we were so nervous right at the beginning but then when we got involved it was so like we knew each other for a million years it was just like we were like the best mates ever yeah and then he started to explain the costume that he was gonna wear he, you know he, the next day he was like i think i'm gonna do this look and of course obviously it was done and uh he asked if we could actually lift him and carry him, and we tried it without the costume, and then we put the costume on, and and uh, it was great. He was very happy about that. Yes, and it was interesting because Bowie in the seventies, obviously, I sort of picked up on him, um, sort of yeah, seventy four, seventy five, and seen little clips of him before that, but that was kind of especially that kind of space oddity moment. But then I sort of realised that in the seventies, he did one an album a year which is quite amazing, relocated yes. several times. He'd sort of done lots of different styles as well. And, and it makes you sort of realize just how much he managed to pack into that one decade. So when you met him, which was kind of towards the end of the 70s, he'd already sort of done quite a body work. And he's, let's face it, his 60s work was a bit hit and miss. But um, even as a fan, <laughs> you know, you kind of realize it's kind of, it was kind of interesting, but you know, like, 
thank God he met Angie and Tony DeFries really at that stage. But we stopped yes. him intensely, and but they really gave him that something. And obviously he knew how to mix and and sort of like a, you know, I wouldn't say absorb, but he was very good at sort of getting new things in his life and and sort of meeting you must have also helped him kind of become inspired because I guess it's about inspiration as an artist. Well, I would say that what came out of, I remember right before we walked, right, right, we were set up on Saturday Night Live inside before we were introduced. And um, he said, he said, something, we were talking about stuff and then he said, he had, a, I remember he had, he had, he had a beer, a cigarette, and then a glass of milk and a cigarette. And then he said, so that as we were talking, then he looked at me and said, you know, I'm going to do this project. Would you, do, would you have to do my makeup for me? And I said, no. And he said, oh, really? I said, I don't do that. Because if I do makeup for you, then people are going to think I'm a makeup artist. So um, where am I going? Oh, uh, oh so the, I think what came out of it after Saturday Night Live, because that was, that was literally the end of the decade, 70, like the end of December. A week later, it was 1980, and then Scary Monsters came out, and that was kind of, it reminds me of me, because that was kind of the way I was painted with him. Yes. And the whole, that whole, that look, it was kind of like Joey and Klaus mixed into David. You could tell, you know, there was something in there, and then even Klaus and I said that. He was like, oh, it looks like you took something from you and me, and I said, yeah, we laughed about that. Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, because I've been doing a lot of interviews with these kind of, the kind of, I suppose, the American sort of, that mid-70s kind of punk thing that started to happen, you know, with CBGBs and the Mud Club. I mean, where was, yeah. where were you in during that kind of phase in life? Because obviously a lot of things had started to change kind of socially and culturally and politically as well. And so how were you starting to sort of navigate that kind of kind of period, which obviously at the time, He's probably got quite a bit of an edge to it. So I just wondered what was, how did you manage to sort of get yourself through that period and sort of find yourself suddenly working with someone like Bowie? Well, the thing was that New York in 70, like let's say 76, 77, right in there, that was like, New York was so like, it was down. I mean, there was parts of New York, and especially in the East Village, bombed out buildings on fire, people with cars burning for heat and, being people being robbed and then and then another part of new york was fabulous and glamorous and it was very intense it was kind of either you were rich or you were poor or you were kind of in between and then there were cbgb's and that's where the ramones and all those bands were hanging out and they were like the kind of punk but not you, you just they were just you know leathery dark and crazy and then i remember looking at a magazine saying the punks from england the punks you know with the colored hair and the and everybody was like, oh, what is that? <laughs> and I literally went with a friend of mine to London and to Paris, but I went to London. To, I wanted to see the punks. And I remember going to this one, there was a, a cafe shop and there was like eight. And someone said, that's them. That's, and I was like, I thought it was a bigger scene than what, the, the you know, what I expected some more people. So, you know, I, we went ahead and I was checking them out. And I thought, this is amazing. But. I wanted to see more people being from New York. So I met somebody from England who had just came, when I got back to the States, back to New York, there's a hairdressing salon that opened up in Manhattan called Jingles. 
and they knew me from Fiorucci and they asked me if I they looked, they, they loved to cut my hair and, and color it. I was like, that'd be great. So in 77, I went there, they cut my hair in kind of a bowie-ish kind of cut. Yes. Bleached it and then dyed it with the color. It was day glow pink with an orange top or yellow streak on top. And I remember, look, I was like, whoa. I was the first person in New York City to walk around with colored hair. No one, you know, 77, no one had colored hair. People threw rocks at me. People were throwing bricks. Cars were pulling over trying to hit me. People were spitting at me. And I remember going to CBGB's and they even were like, what a good, you know. And I started putting safety pins on my clothes. So I made it a little bit like fashionable. Instead of like, yes. instead of like desperation, leather black and leather jacket. So I, I started pushing the envelope. So I was kind of copying the punk of images of England, London, and then incorporating my my uh, New York sensibility of what punk and and survival was. Yes, but it's and interesting because so it I was going to say last week I did a, an interview with Anne Magnuson. You oh, you did? Yes, and she mentioned that she also did a London, you know. E- England trip as well to sort of see what the scene was as well so it was obviously you must have you wouldn't have gone together probably but you would obviously no. have, was, had a curiosity about what was going on over the other side of the pond so to speak to see especially what, with the, the, that whole punk thing it was really like sex pistols of punks and, 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 I, and, I, and you know being young I was, I was looking for revolution looking to rediscover myself and that, that was so fascinating that I had to fly with my friend Kim from Paper Magazine uh, go to London and and check that out. And, and then I remember having, a, 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 I didn't dye my hair yet. Then we went to Paris and then we went to La Palace and there was Edwige and she was the, the door person there. She had blonde hair and she had this thing over her face and like a body, like a, a French army outfit or English uh, army's outfit on, uh, like the Queens, you know, with a red jacket with a black collar. And then she's all these people were trying to get into La Palace, and then she saw us, and she went like, you know, whatever. And so we came up, and she goes, "Is it possible?" There was no more. We were like, "No, we're from New York." Ah, oh, you New York? Oh, and, and she would go, "My name is Edvige. I'm the Queen Punk of, New, of Paris, the Queen Punk." So she was, she had dubbed herself, and and she, and she was the Queen of Punk in and in, uh, in Paris. Yes. So we got back. So you get, you know, coming back to New York, it was like, we met the Queen of Punk. We saw the punks in the Sex Pistols <laughs> in England. Then all of a sudden, I got pink hair. And then people were, you know, started, and it, it, it just pushing the envelope. And, and then, you know, then, you know the, then, of course, you know, earlier I had met Klaus Sperber, who became Nomi. And, you know, he, you know, everyone's just trying, was pushing the, this punk look or something or the new wave, it wasn't new wave yet, but it was like kind of the, everyone wanted to just experiment and try and just change, I yes. think. And before that, you, you'd been in a, a rock band called Puerile. Was that a, quite a conventional lineup? Wait, what, what was the name of the band again? Did you say you, were, were, after high school, did you sing in a rock band? Oh, so, oh, you want to go back there? Okay, so I'm originally from North Carolina. And my parents were army people. And so when I was like six years old, six, seven, six, 
my mother wanted us, you know, I was the one child, wanted to go move to Australia. Because supposedly in those days, they were giving, if you can go to Australia and get to this, this land, they would give you for free, like, I don't know how many acres of land, and you could build a house and, and, and become Australian. And my mother still wanted to do that. So on our way across the States, they landed in Los Angeles to meet up with some family and say goodbye. So we never left. So there I was, I went to school, Catholic school, blah, blah, blah. And then I had my neighborhood friends and they were playing a band and I started to join them because I was singing all the time because I was in a choir. And then eventually we wound up getting a record contract with Capitol Records. And the, and the things that we didn't really have a name and our management just turned around and said the name of the band is called Pearly as the Pearly Kings of, of England. Oh, right. And so we had this record that was a kind of a hit and we were in all the tea magazines and and it was kind of sweetheart looks, whatever. And, and, but in the dark at night, I'd be going out to, to the gay bars with my wild friends and, and Sylvester and all these crazy people. <laughs> and uh, and then kind of in the, then there was this, a friend of ours named mine also, Gary Austin, who started an improv group called The Groundlings. And he had called me and said, you know, come see the show. So I saw it and I freaked out. That was amazing. He wanted me to join. He said, drop the fucking band and you know, do something for real. So then I got into improv theater. So I got to improv, improvise songs, improvise, and learn how to improvise. And then uh, and then in 76, I well in 74, I met my friend Kim, who's going to Cal Arts. So here I'm doing you know uh, this, the thing, the improv. And then I go to visit her at Cal Arts, and then we drove cross country after she graduated from Cal Arts and drove in 1976 in the bicentennial. Right. And so that was, yeah. But there was a lot more in LA that went down. I mean, I, you know, I was hanging out with the Mamas and the Papas. I was hanging out with Side of the Family Stone, with Led Zeppelin, Rod Stewart. The, the, um, God, I mean, it goes on and on because that was like the hot spot for. Music, you know, San Francisco and LA were in those days where that was a place to be. Yeah. And Bowie was living in the hills at that time when he did, he did Hunky Dory, getting ready, creating, uh, getting ready for Ziggy Stardust. And um, it just goes, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was a cra- I had a crazy childhood. Yeah, well, absolutely. And were you aware of those kind of like theater groups like the Coquettes, you know, because um, there was. Very well, because the thing is that my friend Sylvester. Who was in LA with like you know one of the black from you know from the uh, Watts and all my black friends, and uh, Sylvester was you know it was all these queens and really everyone was wild, and then he went to San Francisco and then he, he came back for a little bit and he goes oh child I joined a group called the Cockheads you gotta come in there it's wild, so then we trek up there every so often and go see the Cockheads. <laughs> and, and Sylvester was starring, and Divine was in it, and it was these crazy shows. And you're, you know, I'm a child, I'm a kid, a young teenager, looking at all the at the Cockettes and everything. San Francisco was out of control, hate Ashbury, hippies, and it was just so dreamlike, you know. Yeah, it was like you were on acid without being on, on acid. And it must have been quite a cultural shift and shock to sort of go from somewhere like the 
the San Francisco scene, which from this point of view, and this might be quite simplistic, but it looked kind of quite peace and love with a bit of hash and a bit of LSD to sort of the, the hard streets of New York, which seemed from talking to people, you know, like the New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders, there was suddenly yeah. all the sort of heroin and smack and cocaine and, you know, people getting quite mixed up and messed up. So how did you, how were you navigating that while trying to, uh, you know, develop your own art and, and craft? Well, the thing is that, you know, my whole life I've always like, if I had that concept of try it once and move on, try it once, move on. So I did, I, I tried heroin, but in London years later with Boy George and, and, and uh, Lee Bari, that's, that's, that was later. But I was, I came to I came to New York with a goal that I wanted to redesign myself, reimagine who I was, leave everything from LA, let New York direct me, and I found myself working at a store called Fiorucci that just opened this Italian boutique boutique that was amazing, and so I wound up getting a job there, and of course I just had all this background, but I was there to make sales and. And somehow I got involved in fashion. I got involved with Antonio Lopez. I got involved with just the fashion world. And so I was working a lot, working. And then I, I, I'd go downtown and meet, you know, Klaus and, and Katie and this other gangs, you know, Kenny. And I met Kenny. And anyway, it was like, but we, we didn't really do anything. I think if we did anything, maybe, was, uh, you know, I'd go to City 54 and, me, it was, we'd be like six of us going to somebody's penthouse at the top of the Waldorf Astoria and champagne and cocaine and, and quaaludes and everyone getting fucked up and then having sex. And then and then it, I, I had two days off because I timed myself. And then, you know, when you're that young, you can bounce up fast. Yes. And then I just wouldn't do anything again. And, you know, another time I'd be... Co- but I, I, I was... I, I, I never did heroin in those days. I never did anything. I didn't even drink. And I navigated myself through all this. It was almost like I was on a uh, kind of a carnival ride, just going through all this and looking at everybody and uh, being friends with a lot of people. But I didn't really go into live that, that lifestyle because I was too busy redesigning myself. And I had a, I had a goal. You know, I didn't... You know, I was new still, and I just I, I hadn't really found my niche quite yet. So yes. I was still, I was like a discoverer or explorer, trying to find who Joey was. Yes, and the more absolutely. I kept going, the people, the more people were like, "Who's this guy, Joey?" And you know, because also you know, when the Fifty Four opened up, then people from downtown wanted to go uptown, and the people from uptown wanted to go downtown. So I was kind of almost like this connection. Then I had and. and Right at the beginning, also my hero, as me being an artist, because I went to school for art, I was a big Warhol freak and surrealism and blah, blah. And to, see, to meet Andy Warhol, I almost fell over, melted. And then to become friends with him and Truman Capote, it was like, I, I was like, oh my God, my life. Here yes. was Andy Antonio Lopez and a young Jerry Hall, a young unknown black artist, a model named Grace Jones. I mean, it was all these people that, we're starting off at Cleveland and they were all young and, and nobody knew. And everybody was just going, going. Very New York. New York is a battery. New York is like a symbiotic 
living organism. You connect with it, and you just and and you you play with the city. You go with the vibe. You and you work hard. And some people played more than they worked than they worked. And everybody in New York in those early days, what if you you partied hard, you worked hard. But there's people that fell off the the rail that partied way too hard and never got off the party trail the trail and 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 fell out but, yes. you know, and died or whatever became nothing. But I just kept going and you know, like I said, I never drank. Maybe maybe once in a while we'd have a shot of a to uh, something before we went to the mud club or dance Jerry or or whatever. And uh, maybe at some point we would do some coke with somebody to be naughty and but you know the next day it was like okay you know whatever I gotta go to work I gotta do this we gotta you know yeah that, that was it and what's your I mean when you met people like class or did you meet um Christian Hoffman from the mumps as well and and those kind of scenes I just wondered what that was kind of like you know as a sort of young person starting out because because um yes they're quite amazing characters aren't they Yes, well, Christian, this is crazy. Christian is also from California. Well, he's from California. I think he's from like Santa Barbara or something. So he was part of the, a little bit of the gang in LA with Sylvester and part of this other groups of people. So I remember him, you know, hanging out, not really with him, but around our circle. And he was like this beautiful boy. And a lot of people disappeared. And then when I came to New York, he was in New York and already kind of in this in the punk scene, bands and music. And when I met Klaus, and this, Klaus, I met a lot of these people right my first week in New York. And my friend Katie turned me on to Klaus. And basically he was just like a baker and an opera singer. And he was just wearing chinos and a Brooks Brothers shirt and a, and a fedora and aviators hitting glasses and penny loafers. And he smelled like armpit and, you know, it, and baker's powder on him and and uh, he was just this, this guy that and losing his hair going bald and but he could sing opera and and I, I i found it fascinating immediately we took to being friends immediately yeah and so i i, I was into jazz and uh, billy holiday and he was into maria callas so we'd exchange stories and he'd bake cakes and i'd come over there and and then uh, you know and it, it, it just it just Klaus and then the punk thing and Klaus started to like experiment with his look and then from the leaving that kind of like weird I, I want to call it the old man's look weird look he started wearing leather and putting lipstick on and trying to make a like a mohawk with his little bit of hair he had and and then <laughs> it just it, it just kept morphing you know everything morphed nobody it wasn't like oh I'm gonna do this it's just kind of like you went to an event oh I gotta look like that let me try this and so Klaus was this Klaus Sperber, Sperber. It wasn't to the new wave vaudeville show that a lot of things started coming together. And then Klaus with Adrian, Klaus was like, I, I can't be on stage with us and then Klaus Sperber, that's not the star's name. And so our, our friend Adrian was into this magazine called Omni Magazine about stars and space and all that. Blah, 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 blah. So he tore this poster off this uh, bus station and brought it to Klaus's house. And Klaus was like, what's that for? And then Adrian told him, you want a name? It's there. And so Klaus wrote Omni, Nino, me, Oni, and then the, I think the last one was like, know me. And he went, oh, do you know me? I like, 
he told me the story afterwards because so when we saw the new wave vaudeville show and it was time to introduce Klaus, uh, uh the, i forgot uh what's his name patrick uh, anyway came out and did this whole introduction and then he said and now later on welcome klaus know me and we all looked at each other and thought klaus know me what the hell is that and he came out and sang the army and bubble boat in space and everyone just blew everyone out of the water it was so like that all kind of gelled and so there was and then klaus afterwards he goes do you like my new name i said it's gonna take you a little while i mean i can't you because know, it was always Klaus Sperber Sperber. now it's like know me and it's like oh, okay whatever and then he did a couple of nightclub events like where he did the Ari a couple of times. And then Christian Hoffman approached Klaus and said, I'm putting a band together. I wrote some songs for you. And I got some old songs and redesigned like the twist and the, the lightning strikes. And we're going to make it, it's going to be like punk new way. He did say new way, but it's going to be punk style or whatever. And then Klaus started rehearsing and start liking this and kind of freaked out because he didn't there was no stage show and so then somehow i got kenny sharp involved who was going to art school and so kenny sharp and i back class visually as these police goons from bars and so this thing just started happening you know and then the show started picking up speed and people were going like what the nobody show with this band that christian put together and writing these songs then then Kenny left, and then Adrian, who was the, the, the this beautiful, beautiful person that Klaus was in love with, who had this movement called Dynamation, said it wasn't pantomime, but it was, you know, like the, these Ray Harryhausen films? Yes. Well, Adrian mastered the movement of, like, like if he was being moved around by some unknown force, and we called it Dynamation. So Adrian was moving in front of me to, so I could pick up on that vibe. And the thing is that Klaus couldn't do it. All Klaus could do was like move his hands like a robot up and down and do a step left and right. And move. He could, Klaus had no real rhythm. <laughs> so that's how, that's how people think, oh, Klaus is so genius the way he moves his hands. It's because he couldn't do anything else. Nice. And so that was like the beginning of that with Christian and, and then, you know, so Christian really was very was the one that really brought Klaus onto the stage, and people keep, oh, nobody genius, and know me that, and there was nobody. It's, it's like it was Christian Hoffman. Right. Christian Hoffman was very, 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 very responsible for the reason why Klaus got his success as a as a pop artist. Yes, and then I was and- there. I've been. I saw. I've been there for everything. I saw everybody, everything, scenes, new clubs. And I was literally. Literally at everything that opened, and in my mind, I, I write things down. Actually, yes. Harvard purchased all of my archives. Everything. I noticed. I noticed that for last year. So when you were, you also worked with Anne Magnuson as well, didn't you, on a piece called um, "Strange mm-hmm. Party." So what was that kind of experience like? Because again, she was quite a, an energetic, creative being, wasn't she? Yes, Anna's was the one, one of the forces behind. There's a woman named Susan Hannaford who had opened up right on 57 St. Mark's Place at this Polish hall downstairs. Every Tuesday, she would host with her boyfriend the Monster Movie Club. And so they would get these films that, of course, you could see them now anywhere. But in those days, you know, nobody had a TV. They didn't show these movies in theaters. So they would get these terrifying movies or great movies or, and, we, you know, 
and, sh- and we'd all go there to see these films and, uh, and party. It was great. It was like, it was like a social club. And Keith and Basket and Kenny and this and Ann and Katie and Bob, the list goes on and on and on. And so after about maybe a month or two of that, Ann got started adding to the calendar these events, you know, like the 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 mud slinging women's party and the and the you know uh, prom night and it was just like these things. And so she kind of joined forces with Susan, but Anne was the one that was the powerhouse there and was the director of all these different little events all the time. And then Anne was doing her solo shows and performance art, like singing in the in, in the elevator at, the, at Whitney, like some uh, bicentennial, bicentennial something. And Anne would be like in the elevator doing your favorite cocktail hits or doing, you know, or doing something that was really out there. Yeah. But the thing is that Strange Party was a band that came out of the Nomi because Klaus, at one point, right before the record deal, Klaus got very unbearable. And we all kind of like, okay, let Klaus soak, let him get all mad, angry. And we were, about four of us were hired to write children's songs for this French TV show. And somehow, as we were doing that, we were we'd, we'd start putting this, a little band together to try what these, these kids' songs would be like. And it my friend Tony and I would start writing because George Elliott kept writing all these all this music. And so we developed this repertoire and we kept building the band to it was like a 15, 16 piece band with Janice, myself, Tony, and Paige as four singers. And we started Strange Party. And people and we came out at the Mud Club our opening night. People went bananas. And then Klaus got furious. But eventually Klaus would join and then Anne became our special guest in Strange Party and then and being in the videos with us. But um, what happened, the way Ann and I got together was there was a birthday party for Andy Warhol and they invited like 10 people to come just as Andy Warhol. But I did my look, I think pretty much very close to Andy, but Andy was very impressed and blah, 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 blah. And then Ann and I were talking and she goes, she was laughing. She kept saying, oh my God, you look like Andy. She goes, I feel like Edie, we should do a show together. We call it the Andy and Edie show. It'll be based on Sonny and Cher. And we'll do this thing. And I said, okay, let's do it. And we shook hands on it. And so we put the show together. Anne wrote, of course, like tons of material. You know, Anne, very, you know, she had hands on like because she was a theater person. And uh, we made a video of like a, the, a day out with Andy and Edie. And, and it was like Sunny and Cher show. We did uh, in the Congo Bill Room at Dancetaria. We covered it all in tinfoil with the balloons, the silver balloons. And and everything was silver. And oh, it was great. We came out singing, I Got You, Babe, as Andy and Edie. And, 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 and Andy was there. The people from the factory were there. And it was packed. You couldn't even move. It was like almost dangerously packed. And at the end, Anne goes, well, I guess we're going to go, right, Andy? I'm like, yeah, and I keep taking Polaroids over her all the time. And she goes, okay, bye, Andy. Is it bye? And he just turns around the gun and shoots me in the stomach. <laughs> and I bleed. And I'm like, that wasn't fun, Edie. She goes, I just want to end the show. It's like, all right. And then, and, then, and then the music, and then we walked off, like, waving, and everyone was screaming and laughing. Wow. Afterwards, Andy came up to us. And he was like, wow, Joey, you're good as me. And Anne, she's great as the dead girl. I was like, the dead girl? He goes, yeah, you know, the one that died. 
He didn't say Edie Sedgwick. He just said the dead girl. He kept always. He always referred to her as a dead girl. Wow. And then, and then okay. you know, so and it was such a big hit. And then all of a sudden, I had the story about because I had dinner with Dolly, with Kim, and I wound up hanging with Dolly. So I just tell and the stories. So then Anne said, "Why don't we do the Dolly, Dolly and Gala show?" So we did the Dolly and Gala show, and that was a huge hit. She was e, I mean, she was Gala, and I was Dolly. And it was the show was called "In Search of the Big Butt." Right. It was a very surreal concept. <laughs> oh, I would imagine God. it was. It was kind of. And so, I mean, that that kind of club scene between the Mud Club and CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, and is it three? tier three i mean they they were obviously incredibly important to the kind of um the promote promoting the kind of the scene and the sort of the vans and the and the sort of cabaret theater comedy stuff well the, let me say that cbgb's was a pure punk 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 rotten nasty you walked in there you could fall break your legs of wooden floors falling apart the place smelled like piss and beer it was nasty. So it was pure punk. So you want to go for punk? That's that's where I first met Blondie before they got the before they got fame. Yes. So it, so if you wanted to go see some heavy duty punk in the music, that was the place. It wasn't about theater. It was just like pure music. Uh, CB. Uh, what's the other place you said? Max's Kansas City. Max's Kansas City was like already had it had its heyday. So when we were going there, that was the last wave of it because early you know the 60s that was max's yeah so here's the, the late the middle 70s into the 70s and max's was already like it was already kind of fading but you know but it had a little bit of a revival again that was more music again it was the music it was music with some visuals but it was very more is music it was more like dance interior. That yeah. was really the place that the performers are. Of course, there was, you know, uh, Cliff, uh, Cliff 57, uh, the Mud Club also got, it was a little bit of everything. There was more music, but there'd be, you know, like performance art, but kind of, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that, that's the way I saw I remember, and I think Anne would probably say the same thing, maybe. Yeah, sure. And then, and then, sort of as as we, you know, with the new decade, you know, the eighties. Did you? I mean, at the time, there was, you know, there was. I mean, it was a tricky decade for a lot of people. How did you find your, your yourself? Because this is obviously when you were creatively started to sort of really take off here, wasn't it? Well, we well, well, okay. So when we were all doing our thing, everyone was like, you know, kids, play, 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 work, 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 do our thing, and and you know, and like a joke. It was like we're gonna be stars, or we're stars. It was like a, like play, but you kind of there was an undercurrent you wanted that. So in the eighties, after Saturday Night Live, that was like of everybody downtown New York, all of America, literally Saturday Night Live cracked the egg open for a lot of people. So Klaus and I were like the first people in the whole gang to just like hit it like big. Saturday Night Live, Bowie in America. And of course, it probably, they probably showed it all over the world, but that really fried everybody's brains. So then everybody was like, okay, we they could do it, we could do it. So then, you know, the record deal, I would say like this is the beginning of the 80s. Klaus got the record deal. We were starting to tour. People started getting famous. The the art explosion, Basquiat, Sharp, 
herring, and it was taking off. Everybody was taking off. All, everything was bl bl like blowing up, like like rising. And then right at that point when everyone started to get that recognition and fame and money, AIDS was already was kind of like like the sleepy killer that just crept into everyone's lives mm. and started kill, killing everybody. And so, I, you know, and during all this time too, I was like, I go on tour, then I go back to Ferrucci, then I go on tour and I do them and Ferrucci. You know, so it was like this kind of, and I just wa was watching class die. This one died, that one died. Then you, we're still doing our thing. Anna and I are, at that point, Anna and I were really were taking off. Then Anna was also looking at show business in the middle of the eighties. Then you got, then you got, you know, like these clubs, like club area, like these, like, the uh, uh, these gallery club places and the mega clubs, the Palladium, and, the, and so there was like this kind of a there's death mixed with large venue gatherings, and it looked like people were trying to like oh I, trying to forget what was going on, but at the same time trying to have a life. Then you're trying to be careful. It was really a really intense time mm. and did you, did you feel new york changed a lot in the sense that going from sort of almost you know this kind of the 70s period where it had been sort of economically was you know had, had almost been abandoned to suddenly the reagan decade and suddenly you know a lot of money and the yuppie and then sort of that whole wall, wall street you know explosion well the the, the yuppie bit and the uh where they start sleeping creeping into these fields when we I remember when we saw the first thing it was like a uh what was it uh some kind of a, like urban outfitters or something really kind of more posh in the east village when it was everything was just rotten and nasty and also there's a story we're all like oh, gentrification is coming in and so the yuppies started creeping in and we were all like uh-huh but we we're all it's almost you're you we were too busy to see what was coming behind us in this this wave of like yuppieism and gentrification, and we knew it. You could smell it, but we kept doing our things, and we kept moving ahead. So it was a, a it was a natural progression, I would say, mm. because it, it it wasn't like hold on to it. It's like, oh wow, here comes this wave of destruction, and we got to move on. But hold, if you can hold on to something, hold on because it, it'll pass. So people that had their rent stable apartments or whatever, people like I, myself, I live in Greenwich Village. I don't live in the East Village. I live by, you know, near Fifth Avenue by Washington Square Park. But anybody who had these apartments, you'd stay. And then you saw this gentrification start, slowly creep in. And we, you just you just had to like move, just move, move. But it was kind of like that was going on. And then... People were dying, and then the club scene seemed to, at the same time, was dropping off. But it was, it was a very weird, like sex was very off. But I remember Suzanne Barsh, towards the middle or the end of the '80s, she picked up the ball, and just said, "Listen, we can be wild and creative and nasty and sexual and se sensuality, and created the Copacabana that brought." Every, really everybody together into this complete insanity instead of going to like a certain club that was huge it was just strictly gay or 
strictly just rock. It was like also everything got mixed up with Barge towards the end of the 80s. So you could see that everything that started with the explosion with money and the gentrification and and the way New York was changing and people didn't know she got it and stirred it into this pot of like, this is all what New York is all about. It's all these people, you know, we could all, we could all share a space together. Yes. Absolutely. I think that's kind of see it that way. That's, that was like the eighties, you know, trying to sum it up, but you know, the eighties were fun. It was a lot of great times and a lot of very, very, there, it was very, a lot of crying, a lot of laughing. A lot of laughing. And you obviously had started to really get your voice at this stage, you know, channeling the spirit of Billie Holiday. So yes. going back to what you said very, uh, you know, a while back, you know, your, your love of jazz was starting to really come through. And obviously things take a while. And as I mentioned, David Bowie, I mean, the 60s period wasn't great. So that was like five, six years. And then he suddenly clicked a bit with Ziggy and then sort of realized he could sort of change his style from being a bit folksy or a bit Anthony Newley to something else. And and did yes. you feel, I suppose, looking back, do you do you sort of also see those kind of patterns where you thought, oh yeah, that was me trying something out, and this is me finding really where I'm, you know, where I'm Yes. Well, and like I, I always loved Billy Holiday, and so secretly I always sang "Good Morning Holiday" by myself in my room, in my car, or wherever I went. And then when I was in New York, maybe at somebody's party late at night, they would go, "Joey, it sounds like Billy Holiday." So I'd sing that like, "Good Morning" and people, "Good Morning Holiday," and people were woo. And so, but at, but in but in real time, I was actually doing rock singing, big voices, rock and roll, and, you know, just big, you know, big rock style singing. And I, I but I really wanted that sound of what Billy, what made, what made Billy, Billy. I wanted that same thing that made her. And I want that intimacy with the words that meant something. And so um, I, in the, it was like in the middle 80s, end of the 80s, when people started were dying. I was, I remember, I think the first time I did it was at Antonio Lopez's uh, memorial service. And I was asked to come and sing. And so I sang Good Morning Heartache, and people were on the floor crying. And so I was this guy, I wasn't doing drag. I was like a guy just singing his songs. And then I, I remember going to San Francisco to do a show there and I didn't really have that much repertoire. I was going to be there for a month and I was, so I started rehearsing with this band. And so I expanded my repertoire and I, um, my friend said this article, because he would write this article about like me coming to Seattle. And she says, I swear Joey's channeling Billy Holiday. And I looked at her and I said, that's, that's what it is. Because people could, they would see the, like, like in New York, Joey Arias, Billy Holiday, show. So it was kind of like, uh, uh. not until she said channeling, then it became, come see Joey Arias channel, Billy Holiday. <laughs> and so it all started falling into place. And there, and so in Seattle, I played with this big band. And I wound up doing uh, like this big set. It was like five, six songs and people were going bananas. And, and I looked at the guys and said, do you know Purple Haze? And they were like, yes. So, but they, they did a kind of a jazzy step. So I sang 
Billy, like Purple Haze, Rear Jackson. Nice. <laughs> and I did a Mamas and Papas song, you know, all the leaves are brown. All the leaves are brown. <clears throat> I didn't warm my voice up yet. And people <laughs> were going bananas. And so then I thought, you know, I, and then it was crazy. It was crazy. But then, so there, I, so then I, I was like, oh my God, I, I've just expanded my, from one song to like eight songs now. So just, it just, I just started realizing that that was my new voice. Yes. So then I really did a lot of Billy shows. And then somehow I'd go back and do more of a pop, but then my voice already had found this new uh, vibration of my vocal cords where I had this other you know, ton tonation and I could sing more pop styles, but with that style of voice, but with that tone, those tones, then I would do that for maybe a year or something. And then somebody would say, can we book you a Billie Holiday show? Then I find myself going back doing all these Billie Holiday shows again. So I find myself going in this pattern, like pop and jazz and pop and jazz. Nice. So, so yeah, so I've, the her voice has become my part of me and i had a, a woman from scotland who's a, a medium long story short she said i see black energy around you when you're singing and she kept saying you're changing with this black energy and i said is that bad she said no it's kind of good and she said she's around you but she likes to because it keeps changing i, I went, wait a minute she singing and i, I just thought it all came together. I said, Billy Holiday, the song you change. And she was quiet. She said, I think that's it. But with the Scottish accent, of course. <laughs> and she said, when you channel that song, when you, she said, you are, she said, you, you don't know, but you, you channel for real. People like, oh, Joey's channel. I, she goes, you really have her there, that vibe. And she loves that. When you do that, and she gets a kick out of it. But she said, if you could hold that channeling, the way you channel that song, she would probably stick around longer. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so she likes it. So, but I've always been around Billy's vibe. I've, I've you know, I met her, I knew her, her stepson, I knew her stepson's nephew, and, and I've got and like four years ago, five years ago, they came over to my house with her wardrobe and, and papers and knickknacks and clothing and. I mean, there I was with all surrounded by Billy Holiday's items. I was like, I was, I was very touched, you know. Wow, I would have and we were the same size. Her shoes fit me. Her dresses fit me. I was like, so I said, okay, she's a, she's, I'm five five nine, so she was like five eight five nine. So she was a big woman. Wow, interesting. But then yeah. you you sort of head off, you know, at this stage, you know, sort of roughly um, ish. Yes, Vegas. Yes. You go to Vegas. And so oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then and then Los, uh then Cirque du Soleil, you know, it's become, you know, they take over from Siegfried and Roy and um as the sort of the go-to entertainment sort of place in the world, they sort of, you know, they've got six or seven shows there and you you sort of become part of Zoomanity. So what happened was that okay, so years ago, this is the eighties, we're gonna go hit the eighties again, that uh uh Vanity Fair was it? Vanity Fair magazine. Yes. They uh, on the cover they had like a uh, like a circus cover with some performers and just like and they said a, a circus with no animals. 
It was a beautiful girl in the cover or something. And the big story was about Cirque du Soleil, this new show from Montreal that was coming to Los Angeles for like six months. And it was the first time to see us come to a circus with no animals, but that the people were, the things that they were pre presenting were like blah, 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 blah. And they, and, they, and they featured like five artists. And one of them was a gentleman who was a trapeze artist named Andrew Watson from London. Mm. And so, and he was like this beautiful portrait of his face. And the next portrait was him on a trapeze, you know, shirtless with these tights on with a bulging crotch, bulging. And I remember like, oh my God, I was like, whoa, I want to see this show. And I just like, I was looking at this going, I got to see this. And then they, they, they said they're going to be doing LA and they go to New York. And we were all like, oh my God, this is going to be outrageous. A director film of mine called me. I remember like it was a few days after seeing the article. And, and Search said he was already in Los Angeles doing the shows and it was sold out for months or whatever. And getting reviews, huge reviews. And uh, so my friend calls me and said, you know, Cirque is going to come into town and in New York. And I thought you'd be the best person because you, you, you know, you, you know the music, you know the places, you know where to go and, and fun restaurants. And they're looking for somebody to hang out that would be like them. Crazy fun. They could, and they, do you mind? I said, please give my number. A week later, my phone rings and, and I heard, you know, I answered and said, Hello, Joey Arias there. I said, Yes. Uh, this is Andrew Watson. And uh, 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 Bobby gave us a, your number. You know, we're going to be coming into town and on so and so date. And, and we're setting up. They'd love to meet you for with some, with some mates and have dinner and get to meet some New Yorkers because we, we don't know anybody there. And we'd like to be friends with some. I said, well, please, well, let's meet at a certain place at a certain time. Da, da, da. What's your name again? Andrew Watson. All right, great. I'll see, we'll see you in whatever, two months. I hung up the phone and I thought, wait a minute. But Andrew Watson. And I picked up the Vanity Fair and I was Andrew Watson. I'm like, oh my fucking God. I'm going to be Andrew Watson. And so anyway, they came to town. We became friends. We saw the show. Loved the show. It was a huge hit. Blah, blah, blah. So, again, long story short, I saw all the shows. They come into town when they did. And Andrew, he, he stopped performing. He was working backstage. He was the stage manager. And so I was, was with him. Then he would come to see my shows. And I'd take him out at night. We'd go to parties and crazy and coke and parties and sexual adventures. But not really. It was just like this crazy journey. And so years later, he becomes the artistic director uh, took the place of the man that was actually creating the shows because he left. So he called me and said, Joey, I've become this person. Da, da, da. Right now, we're right in the middle of my first show and we're already talking about the next show, which was going to be a, a, a sex cabaret show. I was like, ooh, such a soleil, wow. He goes, we want Mugler, Terry Mugler to be the director and you know, dress it. And I thought, how genius would you get somebody from Paris, couture, images, who loves the body, to do a certain Soleil show? And I thought, Gene, I gave him his number. So they worked out something. Da, 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 da. So that, but as we were talking about the show, I said, so it's going to be a cabaret sex show? Yeah, it's going to be that, 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 a little bit. He wasn't even sure himself. So I said, so, well, if you could have a cabaret, did you find yourself a, an MC for that? He goes, oh, yes. I said, who's that? He goes, 
that's you. I was like, what? Me? He goes, yes. He goes, I can't think of any. He goes, I've actually went around the world looking for the right person to play this part. He goes, no one like you. You could take people on a journey through hell and at the end of the day, bring them back safely and never, you know, he goes, there's no one like you. He goes, I'm not going to do the show unless you say, yeah. I said, well, what does it entail? A one-year creation of Montreal and a two-year contract in Vegas. I just said, nope, 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 I'm not doing it. Anyway, after three times, they tricked me to, Ve- to Montreal for a gig. And what, but somehow I wound up doing this thing in front of all these people that were from Cirque. They found love with me, and I got sucked into the machine. And so after doing these workshop, workshop, workshops, because I was going back and forth all of a sudden, they finally, after like six months of doing that, then they said, we've now decided for sure that we want you to be an invitation to join our Cirque du Soleil. So I joined Cirque du Soleil. And then I went to Vegas, uh, to Montreal for a year for creation. Right. They had no idea what they were doing. There's Mugler creating the haute couture. And they, they, you know, it was just this crazy, because nobody knew what they were doing. I, I had to walk in and start, or people were doing things, and this, and the water bowl, and blah, and so long story short, the, we had something that kind of came together pretty much in a way. Then we all, and we went to Vegas and the theater was brand new and we had like months to organize ourselves on that stage. And then we had the fittings and this, and the costumes and, and uh, there I was, I was the mistress of seduction and a Cirque du Soleil show. And, I, and in my mind, the director kept saying, think of this as like a whorehouse and you're presenting all the whores to the buying public and you're the madame of the whorehouse. So that was the way I saw the whole show. Yes. So I became the Madonna. And he used to tell me, because I co-wrote it and co-wrote four songs. And he said, you said, as everything was blocked with lighting and blah, blah, blah. He said, in between all that, he goes, if you want to come to the audience and sit down, you should do it. But don't distract with the show. But if you want to sit or do something, whatever, he goes, it's your show. Just feel it. But then you got to be ready to go through your passage or whatever. So... I did that for eight years, and it turned it out. Wow, so, eight years in Vegas. So what was it like, Lynn? Ten, ten shows a week. So, okay, so Cirque du Soleil, I mean, Vegas was already Vegas. You already had Zigfried and Roy. You already had the Wayne Newton. You already had... So these people were like, were already stables in there. And then Cirque came, and were doing shows there. And then they finally eventually got a hotel to join forces, and they opened Mystere, was their first show. And so that was going great. And then they opened, oh, the water show that became the sold out show for like two years of sold out, with genius yeah. show. And then they opened, and then, it, but everything was always a pause for like a year or two as the shows are growing. And then they got, and it was like, everything was family and they had these shows going on. And all of a sudden, here comes this new show, a sex show, Cirque du Soleil has n- nothing like any of those Cirque shows. It was so out there. And so, you know, and I would say words, you know, like, how the fuck are you today, you motherfuckers? <laughs> you know, and like, who likes pussy? Who likes cock? Hey, it's like, oh, fuck you. And people were like screaming and laughing, you know, whatever. it was hysterical. People were going, when it first opened, people were confused, but then we found the audience and it, you know, it was great. Yes, and so we became, so we were known as the the show 
that turned Vegas back into what Vegas originally was because it was really, it became like a family, you know, let's go see the Zigbee and Roy, let's go see the, the you know, Wayne Newton, let's go see that, you know, and, and oh, and Mysterio. Now it's like, here comes the hardcore hits and cock and lots of cursing and sex and sensual. And, but it more, I would say sensuality. It was a show of sensuality. Yes. Well, I, and, I, uh, yes. It was, so here comes this, but when we first opened, it was hardcore. Hardcore. Nice. And how did you, and did you enjoy living in Vegas for sort of? Well, like I always told people, I, uh, I work in Vegas and live in New York. I lived in a hotel the whole time. Right. I, cause I, there's no way I, first of all, I don't like the sun. I don't like that kind of heat, dry heat on top of that. I was really nervous about the whole thing about being in Vegas. So I kind of, you know, I, I loved my job. I loved working. I loved doing what I was doing. But when we had our days off, I was like, what am I doing? You know? So <laughs> it was, it was crazy. It was like, you know, a desert. It is a desert. It is. But I saw. I, but I saw. But you know, I, I've been years before. I saw how it grew and it was growing. And what, even when I was there, I saw it completely transform Vegas. I saw trees come up. I saw palm trees. I saw like a, a foliage that only grows in the jungle. Or and it was they were planting. It was changing the atmosphere of Vegas. I remember talking to old people from Vegas, and they were really furious about what was going on. The new gentrification, the new the new Vegas. They were like, we never had mosquitoes, never here. We never had flies here. We never had now we think it's flies or mosquitoes because these fucking plants. But, you know, so I saw Vegas literally transform into like the new and new. I saw the hotels going up faster than you can imagine. I saw the strip go. I saw the old original strip, which yes. was decayed and rotten, dangerous. And then all of a sudden you got like this. The Wizard of Oz. You got Oz, this whole new Vegas, you know. So I saw. I was a witness to I, to all of that. Huge. Tra- yes, that was a decade where it, it was the mega hotel, the mega resort. Yeah, I would say so. so the, I would say it was right, it was right after 9-11, after like America was like, you know, 9-11. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know it, I would say my, the most of my, the, the 2000s was like, 2000, I, would say, I would say 2008, 2009, was all about Cirque du Soleil. Yes. So most of the tw- the early twenties, before the ten, was all about Cirque du Soleil. Yes. So then, when and so, how do you cope then, sort of on an emotional, personal, creative level, when you've sort of had that kind of basically a contract for for eight years, and you've had that family, and you've had that kind of routine and uh, yeah schedule, and people telling you what to do, and you kind of knowing where the next check is coming from to sort of step away from that into the the next decade? Well, you know, I actually saved a lot of money because I didn't, I was living in a hotel that had a really very inexpensive suite, which it was, a, it was kind of off the strip, kind of this really very beautiful, like off the beat hotel. Which hotel so, was that? But I forgot the name. I can't remember the name right now. I'm sorry. That's all right. But um, it was like a, celebrities were like booked in the big suites and the, uh, the paparazzi were at and they couldn't do anything somehow they were slipped and hidden and brought to this place where they could just be normal and just like go out and do something normal without 
anybody know where anybody was. So I would bump into a lot of people and friends. I'd be like, oh, you're here. And they're, oh, I said, I'm living here with Cirque. Like, we heard about that. So anyway, I, I saved a lot of money. I didn't, you know, and uh, I didn't really buy anything, you know, just I put it away. I, and, the, and with Cirque's ending, it was a, kind of a weird thing about uh, our days because Zumanity was the only show they would change our days around. Like two days off, for long, it'd be like a Monday and Tuesday or a Thursday and Friday or, a, or whatever. Every six months they would keep changing. It was it was just weird, all of that. And at one point they changed like, you work on Monday, you work on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday off and Friday and Saturday, something like that. So also it was one day off to work. And so everybody's bodies weren't, healing you needed two days to you know relax and get yourself together because people did a lot of crazy things with their bodies mm. so there was acts missing so basically with my lawyer um uh, we just they that's i don't want to get to the story sure, i sure. really wanted to stay but at the end he said you know these people are ridiculous so the contract ended with uh there uh i wasn't fired there's no agreement. It was like, could not come to an agreement. It was just that I wasn't fired. I didn't, we didn't quit. It was like, could not come. To, it was just like, I'm going to go be my way and you're going to do your thing and see you later. So it was kind of weird. Everybody, people in Vegas, were, everyone was crying. People in Vegas were, all the shows were, no, not Joey of all people. So anyway, I come back to New York. I'm, I had my stuff shipped here and I'm back home and so happy to be, and I felt like a stranger in my own town. And uh, I, I, I just kind of like, I, I didn't know what I was doing because I was in the schedule of like Cirque du Soleil. And uh, I just remember at one point I met Basil Twist, who was a dear friend of mine. And we had a glass of some wine and he said, you know, I got some time. So this is like uh, back in January or February, March or something like that. And then Basil said, in June, I got these three weeks that I, I, somebody was supposed to do a puppet show, but they backed out. So I'm going to do something. So I'm wondering, would you let me join me and do a show? And I was like, Basil, I've been wanting to be in your shows for years. I love your puppet shows. They're unbelievable. And so he goes, well, what do you want to do? So, of course, I was just like, well, I want to be abducted by aliens. And then I want to be on an acid trip. And then I, I, I want to be in a big cake with a million legs. And something like that. And he was like laughing. He goes, well, that sounds great. And then we talked and talked. And then two days later, he came over with like a diagram with like this layout of what. And I was like, what? He, so we kind of straightened that out. And I thought he was joking. And then two weeks later, he said, come to the studio. And then there was this jungle that they already started building. I was like, what? He goes, Joey, we're really doing this show. I, I still hadn't believed it. And it's so. As the show was growing, it was just whatever. So they were looking for a title, title, title. And I kept giving them titles. And one day I was looking at a cocktail. And I just thought, lemon twist, lemon. Oh, and what? My other areas with a twist. And I looked at the guys and said, okay, the show's called Areas with a Twist. Everybody was like, Geek, and that was it. And we did this puppet show that blew everyone's minds. So all of a sudden, there's a little bit of a gap. And then doing this show in the New York Times, we were in the cover of the arts and leisure section. It was on Friday for the weekend. And here I am in the cover saying, Aries of the Twist, Madonna, eat your heart out. 
circles with their tongue hanging out. <laughs> so here I am at another award. That's your ref for a year. You know, oh my God, it was insane. Yes. Insane. So there I'm on like another journey. I had no idea what I was going to do. And boom, you know, there I am. I found myself in a puppet show. <laughs> God, that's um, that's nice timing, actually. That's good timing. So then you did that for a year, and then sort of, how does it take you up to the present day? And then I did that for a year, and so where I was, so let me see. God, I'm, now I'm kind of like, what? What is the present day? What am I doing now? Um, I would, you know, what I was, I after doing the shows and we kind of ended it, I was touring. I just started doing a lot of tour touring. Uh, it'd be like, I did a lot of Joe's pub shows where I got like a two month, uh, it'd be like every weekend on a Friday, I do a show. And so I started experimenting with having like Alan Cumming join me or, or Debbie Harry joining me or, or John Cameron Mitchell or Ad Magnuson if she was in town. And it was, so I started playing with music and, and stretching myself and doing like Led Zeppelin covers, but very bizarre, crazy. Yes. And then um, I found myself doing a lot of touring, going to Australia and back to Japan. And it was, uh, yeah, I would say after all that, it became more touring. I'm trying to think what else. God. And then. Um, so how have, yeah. you, how have you found then this kind of bizarre year? And I just wondered what you've sort of got slightly planned, if you can plan anything for the for the following year or two. Well, okay, so what, this is not so somewhere. Uh, oh, then I oh yeah, because I go, I used to go to Europe with Mugler. Plus, I was working with Mugler a lot, and we were designing a show for me. We shot videos, so there's like this whole thing. I came up with Z chromosome that was came, that was based from Aries of the Twist, and Mugler was involved. In, so we were anyway. So there's and then I wound up seeing this guy who's Scottish, and then we kind of. It was like almost like an eight year, and we got, and when Obama said you can get married, we got married. And so we got married, and then somewhere in 2016, he, I remember he went back to Scotland and Spain, and he was there for three months. He came back from, from Europe and came back in like November of 2016 and said, after a couple of days, I felt somebody was wrong, and then he told me, oh, I met somebody. I'm like, oh, really? And he said, oh, we fell in love. I said, did you tell me you're married? Well, yes, I did. I said, well, he goes, how do you feel? I said, well, I don't know. Just pack your bags and get the hell out of here. What am I going to do? Jump up and down, scream? So and so he basically, uh, and by November, got, he packed up all stuff. We got a divorce. He wound up taking our French bulldog that would, I already had been here for six years and wanted to take her for seven, seven months and bring her back, blah, 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 blah. So they left. And so here I'm all of a sudden in my apartment and it's quiet because he was always playing music and there was art and something, there was always something or the neighbors, there was always something fun going on here. And I was doing show, and it, all of a sudden it was just quiet. Everything was quiet. And I was like, oh my God, no Thanksgiving, okay, nobody. Christmas, nobody. New Year's Eve in LA was, uh, was fucked up and it was weird. And I was just like, I just felt alone. And somehow I wound up having a glass of wine, two glasses of wine. What I want to say is like, I wound up becoming an alcoholic that year, 2017. Right. 
I wound up drinking 24-7 white wine, literally 24-7. I couldn't go anywhere without drinking wine. I'd stop at the bar. Oh, jolly white wine. I, I had like three flasks in my bag with white wine. I had like five bottles in my house. I would drink every two days. Like, and the girl at the liquor store would give them to me for like these huge bottles for like $5. So I'm drinking all this wine. And then I remember at one point I was making coffee in the morning. I was shaking. And I thought, oh my God, I'm getting Parkinson's disease. And then when, I, then when I poured the wine, I drank that big cup in the morning, everything stopped. And I went, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. I got the shakes. And then a friend of mine came over and had a tooth operation and he was taking these pills. And I said, what's that? And he goes, oh, it's a painkiller. He goes, you want some? I said, sure. And he gave me like 15 of them, whatever. So I popped one and I felt, ooh, I feel good. And then after the 15 were gone, he came over again and I took another, he gave me 20 next time. So, and then I, I, after that, all that, I started like jonesing. I was going through withdrawals and I said, I need more. And he came over and I said, what am I taking? He said, you're taking Oxycontin. And somehow I got involved with the mafia and something. And it's, that's another story. I'm not going to tell you too much about that. Where I was getting, well, pardon? I said, blimey, you, you got in touch with, uh, in, uh, with, uh, yes. I became, I became Billy Holiday for real. Yeah, where I was like drinking like twenty four seven, taking ten oxycotton a day, and if I if I did go out, I had to take a, 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 a like two or three to get me like to a, where I looked like normal. Right. But my but also two thousand seventeen, my voice started falling. I couldn't sing certain songs. I couldn't do certain things. That I, I mean, I could trick. I knew all the tricks, but I and then somebody caught me in the December of. 2017 and it was like had an intervention and it's it took me to get and I wanted it to end I remember at one point it wanted to stop and I went through withdrawals and, and oh it was just the worst worst feeling and I, but I wanted to stop because I kept thinking I can't do this anymore I can't be going on tour and trying to get like 30 oxycons and then drinking the whole time and just to, to exist it, it, that, that, that's not my life that's not me and so when this intervention happened, I didn't want to go. It was December 21st. And I was like, I, uh, no, I didn't know it was an intervention at first. Anyway, there was like all these people sitting around my friend's apartment. And uh, I, I said, I want it, but I, I want to go on New Year's on, on uh, the 1st of uh, January. They were like, nope, today, December 21st, there's a car, a plane. And the hospital waiting for you, and and the and the rehab that I was. And after about an hour of going back and forth, I just surrendered, and uh, I flew that same day to L.A. to this mountain hospital and the mountain rehab for four months. And they detoxed me for like two weeks. And uh, the rehab thing was weird because this whole twelve step thing was like, okay, whatever. But when I when I got detoxed. That was when I felt I was so happy because that the, the taste and the want was gone. So that and so then here's 2018. Because all the 2017, you know, boy, uh, Trump got in, and it was just like this weird year. But then I kept thinking, December 21st is the solstice. It's also the Mayan calendar ending with it was two, uh, 2012. December 21st was the end of the Mayan calendar. 
So the 21st became, there's like this magic number. I was like, ooh, this is, anyway, so that was my, uh, that was that. that. And then here I am, you know, uh, and then, and then um, I, 2019, 18, touring again, 2009, where are we, 2020? I, I was touring and working with people and doing some things, working with Suzanne Barsh and, and doing shows. It was doing shows, you know. I started, I was doing her Barshland Follies every week, and then I do things in New York. Yeah. And, did and, you, then, and I was going to say, and, did that period where you'd sort of, had had lost it all. Were you were you able to sort of regain your voice and your persona? I didn't. You know what? I I was kind of like very Billy Holiday. I was kind of like hiding, and I looked weird. And everything changed. I looked. I, I just looked. I when I went out, I had to make myself. I worked really hard to make myself look good. And then I um I I I uh, um after the rehab that 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 whole period was so odd. Because I was in a hospital, the first four days of the rehab, I couldn't talk, I couldn't walk, because the medication and everything they were giving me to clean my, the blood and the nerves, nerve endings was like so intense that I couldn't even walk, and then I could walk again, and then finally, they, that it was all done that part, and then to the rehab, and I didn't really talk that much to people because we didn't we didn't have television or nothing. It was just like books. You had to go to bed at a certain time. Da, 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 da. So I felt like I was in prison, yeah. but I kind of went into into myself. And I, but it was Joey, but I wasn't like I I never really got like bad. It was only one year. It wasn't like twenty five years of drugs and drinking and heroin, and then I lost everything. Everything was the same. It was just me. I I kind of caved into myself, and I got caught before my career actually went down. My career was going up, and just stopped. Yes. I got caught, clean, and I was going up again. So it never went like dropping to anything or losing anything. The only thing I lost was I got rid of it was the, the the addiction thing. And uh, I, you know, I I talked to people at the rehab. And long story short, again, I never sang. I didn't do anything. I, I read or wrote. And it wasn't until at the at the end till I um, it was the last two weeks. I remember I was in my this one beautiful like apartment up in the mountain, up in this tree house, whatever they gave me, and it had the beautiful bathroom and the acoustics were beautiful. And I was, I was getting excited about getting ready to leave soon, and and I hit this note, and it sounded so pretty. I went, oh, and I started singing. I went, oh, my voice is back, and and I started pushing it, and I was like, all the notes are back, so I didn't lose anything. It was just. The booze was like tightening up, and I think if I had not got caught and I kept going the way I was going, I probably would not be singing right now. Yes, God, that was lucky. And so now my everything is. Um, people see me to go like, "Oh my God, you're better than ever. You look amazing in your face and your your skin, and there's no wrinkles in your body, and your voice. You just and you're you're just like alive." And so. You know, I, I, you know, I, when I first got back, also from all that, I, I was going to the rehab, uh, the, the, the meetings, and they were great. And after like a year of doing that, two years, and then with the COVID hitting, you know, I, I, I just, I don't need to be talking about it. You know, I just, I feel great. It's not like yes. 
Like some people are like, I'm going to miss my meeting or I'm going to lose it. I'm like, I wanted this out of my body and I ain't nothing going back. I've, I even smelled someone's uh, whiskey like about a month ago. They were like, oh, and I smelled it. I gave it back and they looked at me and they said, what was that about? I said, someone smelled the perfume of the whiskey for a perfume. They were like, oh, that was good. But I don't want anything. I don't know. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's amazing. So hopefully next year we can get back to some normality and it will win. Yeah, so, well, what I, what, I, what I am working on right now, I'm working with Suzanne Barsh on a, I, I don't even know what to call it anymore. It was start off as a talk, uh, as a talk show reality, something lifestyle with Joey Ayers and Suzanne Barsh as your host. And we felt, so we filmed like a sizzler reel. We wrote, you wrote a treatment and blah, 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 blah. And uh, everybody got, it's, like really over the top. It's very, it's crazy. If, if we showed it to some people, there everyone was, oh, what? Oh my god! So now uh, the director producer turned it on to some agent and one of the, the biggest agencies, one of the big three in Hollywood. He fell in love with it. We already had a Zoom meeting. We're having another one coming up this week, and uh, it's green lights. To keep going, they want to know more what, how, because it's also bizarre. I don't they keep, keep talking about what is the engine of the show. And sometimes Suzanne, I, I'm lost. I don't even know what he means anymore. To me, the engine means the power. Because I said, Suzanne, you and I have the power, but they want something else. They want to explain. But I said, if I could answer that, then we don't need him. We could redo it ourselves, and, you know? So I don't. You, I told Suzanne yesterday, we need somebody to sit here with us who doesn't, who's not part of this, to look at us and and say, "Oh, I see this is this and that." I've been talking to friends also on the phone about this, how they see this and what is the engine of this? What is this? You know? Yes. So this. Yeah, and then I, uh, I didn't get ready to do like a preparing live concerts for the internet, so you could buy in. So you know that that's going to happen in the new year until we can start doing it live. And, uh, you know, I've got a few little things up my sleeve, you know, so I'm being very creative, very creative. There's a few things I want to do, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. Sure. So look, just last question, this last point or question actually, um, if you could have said, or, you know, that little bit of wisdom that you've picked up or even a lot, um, you know, you could have said something to an 18 year old self start now. I just wanted what sort of what you'd have loved to have just whispered to them to say, oh, by the way, kid, just come here. I'll just give you a little bit of you know a few words of advice. I just wonder what you would, you know, you've sort of picked up over the decades. And what would I tell an eighteen-year-old person? I would say, first of all, don't you you're going, you're going to go through ups and downs. You will stumble. You'll rise nothing comes easy you got to work hard you have to have to focus you know what you, you have to you have to like imagine it you have to go for it you will be again pushed and lifted and let that dream really carry you and you got to really believe it and and if, if you ever feel like it's not happening it's happening but it doesn't happen overnight so you got to work at it and you got to really believe that you want that so let's say Let's say you want to be a secretary for a big law firm. Well, 
that's what you have to do. It doesn't have to necessarily be like theater or you, you know, it could be arts, it could be a writer or it could be a filmmaker, but you're gonna stick to your guns and you and be honest and 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 also any bad energy around you, anybody that is not gonna help you in your in your growth or vice versa, you must cut those old branches off. You have to discard these people. You think they're they're your friends, but they're not. They're just sucking the juice out of you. Those are the kind of words of advice I would give someone. So it's oh not just like a, like a sentence, but it's, I have to tell them the way I see it. And, and I'm lucky that I was lucky to go through it and come out alive and learn myself. Because you only learn by doing it yourself. I could tell you, but you still have to go through the journey yourself. But this way, you already have a, a, a map I gave you. So if you get confused, you got to look at it and go, oh, Joey said this. That's right. But I said, you still have to do it yourself. You mm-hmm. still got to get hurt. You're still going to get ripped off. You're still going to fail. But you're still going to believe. You know, it, it, you have to, those are the things, you, those outcomes you have to like, uh, uh, come up with, you, uh, how to come up with the, uh, the answers to these, these things that happen to you. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Does it make sense? No, no, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Yes, absolutely. It's um, it's a good blueprint. Did Anne, did Anne say something like that? Also, did she did she mention? Did she talk like that about? Did you ask? Oh, her I, I, um, I haven't listened to it back. I only did it last week, so I haven't actually put it up there. But um, I'll put it I'll put it up there soon. Then you can have a listen to that as well. Yes, well, that's what I would say. It really is. A, you know, life is a journey. It's a journey and it's exciting and you can make it exciting. Yes, you're going to take, you know, tell some people, you know, don't do drugs. Seriously, don't do them. Don't, you don't need, but you know, I wish I was like a, like a, a social drinker the way I loved to drink before. Yeah, you go for dinner and all of a sudden, oh, oh, yes, I have a glass of white wine, which is a beautiful glass of white wine. That would be it. Yeah. You know, I screwed up. I used to love going to a Mexican restaurant and having a margarita. I screwed up. You know, I, I was never like someone who like drank and to come home like, I need more margaritas. You know, I did it. It was a social like thing. And not that I did it all the time, but I'm kind of angry at myself for, you know, for misusing that, 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 which I love doing, but, but I'm happy the way I am. Yes. So someone's going to tell people, you're going to do drugs, then be careful. I said, you know, if you could do crystal meth, remember, you might get hooked and you may not come out of that alive. Um, so, so I tell people, yeah, don't do, these days, I wouldn't do drugs anymore. When I was a kid, when I was younger, it was a lot different. It was a different world now. Drugs will actually come to kill you. In those days, it was fun and for play. Yes. But now, you will die from using these things. That's, you know. That's, but that's- yeah, never know. A tricky world, isn't it? Well, look. No one knows you when you're all alone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no one. Yes. Anyway, look. Well, Joey, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And um, so now, tell me, what is this show? What's it called? Oh yeah, the C eighty six show. So um, yes, I'll um, when I put it when I do it, I'll um, I'll send you the link, and you can always put it on your Facebook page or any other, any other place that you'd like to, uh, you could use it, you know, and, uh, So is this an audio? Is this going to be an audio? Yeah, okay, show? Got it. it's just audio. Cause all I've got is Joey's iPhone 
You just, I've never seen, I, you know, that's all I've you seen. I get all dolled up too. I'm like, oh God. So anyway, you can look at my Instagram and see the photographs there. Have you been, have you, did you, did you mean to have your camera on? Yeah, I didn't know. But I was like, all like, oh, up and, but you know what? It's okay. I, the, I was kind of nervous. We were not going to hear each other or at least I see you. I was most, I was worried. I just wanted to hear you. That was the most important part. Yes, well, absolutely. I didn't realize because because some people don't like to have the uh, visuals on, and I thought, oh yeah, that's fine. Don't worry, I'm I'm okay with it. But then you've been done. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, but you know the the weird thing is sometimes in the morning. Well, I'm I mean not that I'm like a monster, or anything, but you know my hair's not right, and I haven't really washed my face. And it's still that morning, but and my phone rings. It'd be like I want to say FaceTime, or they they want to see you like. As the phone call, would they want to see you? I see, I don't even answer it. Yeah, and then I'll write back afterwards. I'm like, I don't answer the phone early in the morning. No, absolutely. No. I don't want you to see me naked in bed. I know, it's especially too early. Anyway, look, that's been, that's been a great, fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. All right, real pleasure. It was great talking to you. And uh, I'll keep in touch. Uh, and, and may the force be with you. <laughs> yes. Bye-bye. Live long, prosper. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. There you go. That was me in conversation with the artist Joey Arias. Find that bomb about love, life, poetry, everything else. Anyway, thank you for listening. Um, If you want to contact me, David Eastall, on the C86 Show, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. It will just come right up there in your face. And, um, yeah, keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. I mean, really, why would you um, write a negative review? (laughs) Well, you can write what you want, but um, don't send it to me because I don't care. Anyway, and also all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just check it out, C86 Show. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.